Well, good evening, everybody. It's very nice to see you all here at the LSE on, a, on an evening. Uh, I'm Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors at LSE, and it's a great pleasure to uh, be chairing this talk tonight by Henry Young. Uh, now is the time, please, if you wouldn't mind, just to turn off anything irritating like mobile phones. Um, our speaker tonight comes from the National University of Singapore, as I'm sure that you all know. Uh, that's one of LSE's five global partners. The LSE is uh, twinned, as it were, with Sciences Po in Paris, Columbia University in New York, National University of Singapore, Peking University, and the University of Cape Town. And uh, Henry's talk tonight is the second in a new LSE NUS public lecture series. And the idea of this is really to try and provide a platform in one institution for work coming out of the other institution. Uh, NUS was very kind and hosted me back in, I think it was March last year, so it's particularly nice for me to be able to reciprocate tonight and chair Henry's talk. Uh, Henry was born in Guangzhou in China, uh, but emigrated with his family in 1979 to Hong Kong and moved, I think, to Singapore in 1988. He did his first degree of BA at the National University of Singapore and then took his PhD at the University of Manchester. We're just talking about this. Henry's part of a very sort of famous group of economic geographers that were trained uh, by, amongst others, Peter Dickin at the University of Manchester. And Henry joined uh, the Department of Geography at the National University of Singapore as a faculty member in 1995 and has been Professor of Economic Geography there since 2005. Um, most of you perhaps will know something about Henry's research interests. They're focused on the geography of transnational corporations, Asian firms and their overseas operations, and Chinese business networks in the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, he's conducted extensive research on Hong Kong firms in Southeast Asia, the regionalization of Singaporean companies, and the emergence of leading Asian firms in the global economy. I actually think that his work is amongst the most productive of all the economic geographers that I've read in recent years, if I can say that as a personal uh, note. Um, Professor Young is the business manager of the Singapore Journal of Tropical Geography. He also serves on far too many editorial boards, I would have thought. I don't know how you have time. But those include Environment and Planning A, Economic Geography and Review of International Political Economy, all top journals. And with Chris Olds, Henry is the author of a much-cited book on the globalization of Chinese business firms. So we're delighted that you're here with us tonight. I understand that you're in the UK for a few days. And Henry's going to be talking on From Regional to Global Players, the Emergence of Asian Firms in the Global Economy. Welcome. Thank you so much, uh, Stuart, uh, for your very generous introduction. And uh, it's very nice to see you again. Uh, last year, when uh, Stuart came to Singapore, I was the one chairing and uh, on behalf of my department. So it's really nice to, uh, to have you here. Um, again, it's my uh, great honor to be here uh, speaking to you. As you know, I mean, I uh, grew up in Hong Kong, and uh, speaking in the Hong Kong theater means something to me. 
Uh, and I remember when I left Hong Kong for my first degree, I uh, dare not apply to the LSE Department of Geography because it was so famous and, you know, I ended up going to Singapore, uh, which is slightly lesser in those days. So again, I feel extremely privileged to be here at the LSE to, uh, to give this uh, lecture on behalf of my university in that sense. So um, I would like to thank the LSE for this invitation and my colleagues at the Regional Studies Association for flying me to, uh, to London. All right, today um, I shall talk a bit about a, a, a kind of topic that I've been uh, spending quite a bit of time in the past 10 years uh, looking into uh, some of the large companies coming from the Asian newly industrialized economy. So in today's talk, uh, when I refer to Asia or Asian firms, I mean East Asian firms, essentially from the four tiger economies of Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, and South Korea. And if you're interested in China's firms, uh, I can talk a bit maybe in the question and answer session. Okay, uh, I will briefly uh, explain to you why these Asian firms kind of matter uh, and then say something about their investment behavior pattern as well as the emergence as transnational corporations, TNCs in short. Uh, I will try to explain how they have come to where they are through a particular analytical framework that talks about the integration between global opportunities and corporate strategies, and to a certain extent, uh, towards the end, home-based advantages. As a geographer, we are interested in how specific regions, territorial states, and institutional setups matter in the development of particular uh, corporate um, behavior and uh, significance. Okay, let me move briefly to talk a bit about the significance of some of these Asian firms. Uh, I won't bore you with uh, lots of data. I know this is the uh, late time of the day, and I just flew in this morning, so I'm a bit uh, in a drowsy situation. I will try. All right, um, I think it's quite important to know that actually um, two Hong Kong firms account for half of the world's uh, fabric production. Uh, four to five Taiwanese firms are making most of the notebooks that we ever use. Uh, two Singapore firms are making uh, 15 to 20 billion dollar worth of offshore oil rigs per year. Uh, and so on and so forth. And global brands, I think many of you use uh, Samsung, LG, and, and many other brands. So in that sense, I think we are talking about a group of companies which are not too entirely insignificant, uh, to a certain extent not too unknown in today's global context. Uh, of course, we know the IBMs, and I was told that um, Bill Gates was just here, so Microsoft, everybody knows. Uh, but equally important, I think these are the kind of the lesser, perhaps lesser known, but fairly significant companies in the respective sectors and industries. And that's the point I want to make today. Uh, but I think in the, in, in the understanding of why they came to this global significance in their particular industry and segments, uh, it's important to know that they are, these are not just sort of uh, acquisitions in terms of buying over other companies and then kind of take advantage of the existing assets of those companies. But many of these have grown organically as well in terms of domestic growth and then internationalization and so on and so forth. So I think what is important is to ask from where, I mean, does country of origin matter, right? You know, where firms come from? Uh, coming from very different business systems, for example, we know ta Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and South Korea, although they, they were all called tiger economies, they, they obviously were tigers with very different stripes and colors. So I think in that sense, again, we are talking about very different home-based, um, significant uh, system differences, and we need to talk about some of those differences when it comes to understanding how these firms internationalize and become significant players in the global economy. So um, again, 
Another way to present some of these uh, Asian firms and the significance is to look at some of the sectors in which they come to prominence. Uh, in the information, communication, technologies, ICT industry, I think Taiwan and South Korea, and to a certain extent Singapore, have become very, very significant players in the global economy today. Taiwan, some of you, if you're from Taiwan, you obviously know of companies like Honghai, Guangda, TSMC, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Uh, UMC and Acer, the computer brand some of you know of. South Korea, again, Samsung and LG I mentioned. This is in the ICT industry. In marine engineering, for example, there are two Singapore companies which are very, very significant, Capo and uh, Samcorp. Transport, we talk about uh, automobile manufacturers like Hyundai, the Singapore Airlines I flew uh, last night or this morning, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think these are quite big, and these are all multi-billion dollar companies we are talking about. So the question is, who they are, what they do, and how do they become significant players in today's global economy. Since many of these industries are globally competitive, in other words, they are very significant incumbents in those industries, particularly in this part of the world, uh, and how do then these companies make their way to that crowded situation? Well, I'm a geographer, I've got to show you a map to, uh, to I suppose, self-justify. Uh, and if you are geographers here, so I suppose uh, you know the reason I do this. Uh, just to show you, uh, I don't have a pointer, but just to say, ah, okay, this is the pointer. I'm only talking about Taiwan, uh, South Korea, um, where's Hong Kong now? Oh God, okay, Guangzhou. <laughs> Hong Kong is uh, somewhere there. <laughs> what happened? We didn't put Hong Kong in. Ugh. This is Hong Kong theater, I see the big word there. Singapore, the little red dot is somewhere here. All right. So uh, I'm not talking about China to, uh, in this talk, and Japan for that matter. Of course, much has been written on the Japanese firms and their significance in the global economy. And I'm not going to go into specifics in this case about some of those. All right, so this is where we are coming from. I'll just give you some sense of the, uh, the emergence of some of these um, uh, economies in terms of firms investing abroad. Now, this is a figure coming from the United Nations World Investment Report. If you look at the figure, 1980 to 2005, in the year 1980, uh, among the developing countries, Brazil was the largest foreign investors, followed by Taiwan and, uh, and, and a variety of other countries. If you see the top 10, uh, Taiwan number two, Singapore number 10, and there is no uh, South Korea, there is no Hong Kong in, in, in that leaked table. This is 1980. All right. By 2005, if you see Hong Kong is a very big investor. Actually, Hong Kong has been a big investor since the 1990s, actually the day I started my PhD for some reason, uh, looking at Hong Kong investment in Southeast Asia. Uh, if you look at today, again, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, uh, South Korea, these are all big investors in the global economy. So again, we are talking about very significant outflows. These are not just recipients of foreign investments from uh, developed countries, but they are also important investors in the global economy. Another um, ranking given by the uh, UNTEC um, of the uh, United Nations Conference on Trade and Development give you a sense of within each of the sectors, the top 20 companies ranked by their revenue. Uh, these are four relatively small economies. We don't expect them to produce big mining companies like from Australia and so on. But if you look at automotive, you have Hyundai in the top 20. Uh, again, chemical, LG, electronics, you have Samsung, Honghai here. Honghai is the one that makes many of the iPhones that you have. Uh, petrol, not so much. Still, to a certain extent, you have uh, uh, POSCO from um, South Korea. 
banking, not much. Construction, not much. But again, these are large capital-intensive industries. But if you look at container shipping, there are many big shipping lines coming from the four tiger economies. Evergreen from South Korea. Uh, APL now is Singapore. Hanjin is um, from uh, Hanjin is from South Korea, I think. Uh, OCL is from Hong Kong. Yangming from Taiwan. And again, these are all either South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore shipping lines. So if you look at the top 20 shipping lines, plenty are from the four tiger economies. Apart from the fact that, of course, there is a lot of production going on, there is a lot of trade going on in many of those places. If you haven't seen your optician lately, this is time to uh, test your eyesight. All right, uh, this is the more recent data, 2009, uh, looking at the top 100 transnational corporations from developing countries. I would just briefly say a few words that if you look at some of the big companies, uh, Hutchison Wampo from Hong Kong, Samsung, uh, Hyundai, LG, Singapore Telecom, uh, Formosa Plastics, Honghai, and so on and so forth. So if you like, among the top 40 largest t uh, transnational corporations from developing economies of the world, uh, we are talking about probably half coming from the newly industrialized economies of uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and South Korea. So again, these are relatively small economies, but significant producers of large-scale corporations. Now, that's the phenomenon I'm looking at today and trying to explain and account for it. In order to do so, I've developed and you know, make use of um, research both done by myself and uh, in collaboration with colleagues at the U University of Manchester, uh, a particular framework uh, we call global production networks. So uh, in that particular framework, we try to link economic activities, and in this case, uh, corporate success, um, between domestic economies and global industries. The idea is that you cannot account for, uh, if you like, corporate performance by just looking at corporate strategies, as in the management literature, uh, international business studies, and so on. So for example, if you look at the top, typically we look at just corporate strategies. What have these firms done? And that's why they are successful or not. Yeah? So that's one approach. Uh, we argue that actually you've got to start with global production networks. You've got to start with global industries and ask yourself, what have been changing? And in what ways those changes enable, create an enabling condition, context, market opportunities, technological upgrading possibilities for these firms to take advantage and of course pursue certain corporate strategies, if you like to get it right. But even in the context of firms doing the right thing, global industries are opening up, windows of opportunities available, you still may not make it. Why? Because, again, you may come from the wrong economy, in a sense. In the sense that your domestic political economic setting may be either wrong or bad or not conducive to your participation in the global economy. So I think this triangular framework, well, I mean, it's quite, quite mundane triangular, essentially try to bring together domestic conditions, global changes, and firm-specific advantages, strategies, in order to understand the particular success or failure, in this case, of these NIE economies and their firms. Okay, so let me explain in a bit greater detail. So what do we mean by production networks and what do we mean by global production networks? Now, uh, in the typical global production network, there will be lead firms, firms which are driving a particular production network. These are lead firms, and lead firms are typically from developed countries whether from the, the UK or the US or Germany and so on, and Japan. Uh, and in, in, in our framework, we define lead firms as firms which are able to control the market, 
through either product or market definition, means they can define the market. So typically, you think of Apple as a lead firm, all right? And a whole range of strategic partners that Apple engages with are part of the global production networks of Apple Computer. Uh, and in, in, in the electronics industry, we have uh, various sorts of uh, terminologies used to define some of those players in, if you like, the global production networks of Apple or HP or Microsoft, uh, ranging from uh, OEM, original equipment manufacturing, uh, to original design manufacturing, to EMS, which is electronics manufacturing service, and many of these different modes of participation in GPNs, uh, global production networks, enable some of these Asian firms to be the strategic partners. They, these are not just subcontractors that you typically think of, but they are very much key players together with the lead firms that enable the entire, well, some call value chain, to be both efficient, highly productive, and of course, as I will explain briefly here, time to market, extremely important. So what drive these global production networks? What are the key uh, imperatives uh, that enable windows of opportunities to be created? One, as we argue, is cost. Now, of course, we know very well today, you know, products are becoming more complex, uh, whatever products you're talking about, and one singular lead firm cannot do everything by itself. We kind of know that now. And hence, there is a great deal of this integration, uh, vertical specialization of production activities. And hence, there are more opportunities created for other firms to participate in the production of one particular thing that enable, for example, costs to be uh, maintained, uh, relative cost, competitive cost. So in this case, we know of this. And I think there is a whole literature that talks about the new international division of labor since the 1980s that talked about relocation of manufacturing activities to developing countries. In this case, it's Asia. And of course, typically today, we think of China as the global factory. But of course, many of these four tiger economies were there before China was opened up and were the recipient of this relocation of production activities, essentially in search of lower costs of production. So this particular spatial fix is something that we kind of know very well. I mean, typically you think of this as a cost-driven relocation of activities. But I will argue in today's context, cheaper production cost is only one small fragment of the real competitive edge that many of the lead firms enjoy. The other two are equally, if not more important. One is flexibility. The other is to do a time to market. Why? Because I think increasingly, firms are no longer producing massive quantity of the same product, but a much greater variety of products, and hence flexibility in production, in production systems, production, uh, production value chains become very important. And this is where many of these Asian partners that you will, you will learn about later uh, are important because they're able to cater to, to this demand for flexibility among the lead firms. And hence, they provide what is called the organizational fix. In other words, it helps lead firms to the fix is organizational imperatives that require greater variety of uh, production uh, activities. Speed, I think that's quite fairly expected. Technology changes very fast. Um, time to market is one of the key competitive advantages today. In other words, if you're slower than, well, if you think of iPad, right, if iPad is launched uh, six months later than, than the very beginning, then Apple may or may not have made it, for example. So I think time to market is extremely important in today's context. Again, you need partners, manufacturing partners, who can provide this kind of time and flexibility to enable you to compete. 
So this is what a typical global production networks look like, uh, drawing upon the uh, work done by uh, our colleagues at the University of Manchester. There are four regions, A, B, C, C, and D. All right, these are, this is a stylized example, but essentially give you a, an idea that, again, different regions are interconnected through this kind of invisible production networks that bring firms together. All right. Uh, we, I won't go into details about like labor union and so on, but just give you a sense of how complexity in this kind of production activities is pervasive in today's global economy. In that sense, firms in Asia have a good chance to plug into uh, some of these global production networks. This is what it will actually look like in terms of uh, actual uh, uh, practice. I'm not torn apart my own iPhone 4, so uh, so we use a 3G to uh, to to demonstrate this. Uh, if you look at Asian partners in this particular situation, you have Samsung, all right, both, uh, doing processor and a RAM chip. And again, in uh, in the case of iPhone 4, is the same. And the assembler is uh, Honghai, uh, or in China, is called uh, Foxconn, uh, um, the factory in Shenzhen, and some of you will know of. Again. Assembly this. So it's designed in uh, California, uh, bringing together a variety of uh, uh, part player. Infineon was the spin off of uh, Siemens, uh, Germany. Again, you have Toshiba and so on and so forth. So, in a just typical one of these examples, there are plenty of other examples we, look, we can look at, but you will see a whole variety of uh, firms and players involved in this particular industry. So, this is what a GPN typically looks like. Okay, so how do some of these Firms from some of these Asian economies get involved in these global production networks. There are three factors which I think are important uh, that drive this articulation of Asian firms in the global economy. One is to do with the idea of transnational communities. And this is not a, 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 a just migrants who, who, who return home, but these are technologists, entrepreneurs, and in fact, some of you, I would imagine, you know, after completing your study, you work in the Cambridge corridor and you, you know, learn some of the latest technologies and participate in some of the most important, significant software developments in that particular industry. And after whatever five, ten years, you come back to Asia, set up your own shop. So you become part of this, what uh, uh, Anne Saxinen called a brain circulation. So brain circulating in the global economy. And in her work, she looked primarily uh, at the Silicon Valley and uh, Taiwan Xinju uh, Industrial Park. The brain circulating Silicon, between Silicon Valley and uh, Taiwan, which in turn provide important impetus to the emergence of the ICT industry in uh, Taiwan. Again, we can use the same example to talk about in Singapore case. We all have the similar kind of brain circulation going on. Uh, Asians who go abroad, study, settle down, work, gain experience, business and technology-wise, return to Asia and then continue to uh, circulate on, on a kind of regular basis in the different communities. So this is a very important factor. And I think, uh, I really don't have to say more. I think you know, many of you will embrace this. So a second point is that, okay, you have the human resources, right? But as I said earlier, if the global production networks have not been opening up, again, lead firms themselves are taking, taking charge of the entire value chain, then there is no chance. There is no uh, opportunities offered for you, right, or for some of this brain circulating back in Asia to, to set up shops, put it in a simpler way. And this happened primarily in the 1980s onwards, when many of the firms in the electronics industry, in some of the other industries, were beginning to specialize in particular market segments, and normally it's in uh, uh, R&D, design, and to a certain extent, post uh, sales services, and leave the entire chunk of manufacturing activities 
to some of these Asian partners. So I think that changing form of industrial organization matters significantly by providing a very important window of opportunity for some of these Asian firms. And of course, a final factor is something that not all four share, uh, three of them share quite quite similarly, which is South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, all three economies pursue active industrial policy. By that, it means the state intervene in championing through a variety of means uh, certain kinds of industries, uh, if you like. So those industries benefit from state uh, involvement, institutional support, and so on. Hong Kong lesser, and we can go into details later if you're interested. So again, some of these initiatives matter very much in promoting how some of these Asian firms plug into the global economy. Okay. So let me show you with some examples, all right, uh, how some of these Asian firms are, are able to embed themselves in global production networks in so doing, create a niche for themselves by specializing in certain parts of the activities. So again, in ICT industry with Taiwan, Singapore, and South Korea, each producing a range of very important companies. Uh, in marine and aerospace engineering, Singapore, South Korea, and China are, are very significant players today. Uh, again, there are some rare cases where, but relatively rare, that some of these Asian economies are producing lead firms by themselves. So Samsung, for example, is the lead firm by itself today. It's not fair to say Samsung is just a supplier, right? Samsung may be a supplier to uh, Apple in terms of uh, the RAM chip, but Samsung is world number one leader in a, a couple of uh, major products and industries in a RAM, RAM, RAM chip making, in LCD production, and so on and so forth. And of course, there are other industries, not just ICT and manufacturing. Give you an example, again, some of these companies. Uh, again, I talked about earlier uh, Foxconn, which is Honghai Precision in, in its original uh, name in Taiwan. And this is the damn large company. This is not a small-scale uh, company that, you know, paying uh, subservience to uh, Apple computer only. I mean, this is a company with $66 billion turnover, all right, which is very near to HP today, with a market capitalization of $37 billion. It's not 37 million, but 37 billion. So it's a gigantic company. Uh, and it's the world's largest electronics manufacturing service provider, EMS. And of course, if you talk about employment, we know it hires a few hundred thousand people in Shenzhen, and that is gigantic. And in Singapore, we have a little company, which is also top 10 in the uh, e electronics manufacturing service provider, which plays a significant role with uh, partnership with have a packet uh, because the founder himself used to, uh, to be the managing director of HP Singapore and Malaysia. And he happens to be also the chairman of my university's board of trustees, means my big, 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 big boss. Yeah? So I know this company quite well because of that. And, uh, and it makes most of the printers uh, for HP, the printers you use, uh, HP brand, and is, is essentially made by VentureCorp. Uh, and of course, Guangda Computer makes my own uh, Macintosh, and uh, most of the Macintosh notebooks will be made by Guangda. Guangda then now in uh, Shanghai and uh, shipped to you directly whenever you buy a notebook online with Apple.com. It's a very large company, again, the world's largest notebook manufacturer. Uh, Compel, which is a similar competitor, and just a, a table to give you a sense of, again, three or four of them dominate all right, the, uh, the notebook production. And of course, they serve a variety of clients, as you can tell. All right, not just uh, leading ones, you know, but also uh, they themselves. So Acer, for example, spun off its own manufacturing arm into what's called Vistrum, which in turn served Dell, all right, its competitor, if you like, and uh, Lenovo. So Acer is a very interesting example of 
in itself spinning off his manufacturing. So Acer focuses on um, brand development, and again, the very much the same thing that many of these lead firms are doing. This is just one example, again, electronics. There are other, many other examples we can go into details, which give you a sense of how some of these Asian firms specialize in manufacturing activities. So like Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Comp Company is the world's largest wafer fabrication, uh, or I should rephrase, um, uh, independent wafer fabrication um, company, because the largest is actually Intel, but uh, Intel actually designs and makes the chips, but TSMC doesn't design, it makes the chips for everybody else. Uh, Capo is um, a, a very large oil, offshore oil rig production, and you have other specialized service providers, whether in terms of a testing in the electronics industry or Singapore engineering, technology engineering that does uh, aerospace. Uh, you have uh, trading companies like Olam and Hong Kong's Lee and Fong, Olam from Singapore, Hong Kong's Lee and Fong. Uh, these are, again, very, very large, uh, dominating, again, respective industries, you know, respective categories. I know Olam in Singapore, for example, uh, cashew nuts. If you eat cashew nuts, you're bound to have been, uh, the, the nuts will be bound to have gone through the hands of Olam, all right, whether it's in your Calgary, Calgary uh, chocolate or whatsoever, all right. They basically dominate the trade. Uh, same goes to some of the shipping line, and there are many others I can go into detail. Just want to give you a sense of, again, the relative significance of some of these companies. These are three Singapore companies. Um, two are in the offshore oil rig business plus other things, but they are the world's largest offshore oil rig production uh, companies, and they partner uh, with uh, major oil companies and uh, offshore exploration firms as well, and, and so on. This, this will be the kind of offshore oil rigs we are talking about, each one costing about half a billion dollars. So um, the expertise of these two companies uh, was recognized, if you remember, the BP uh, oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, because, as you remember, one of the rigs uh, um, exploded. Uh, it wasn't made by one of them, thank God. So. Uh, maybe by somebody else I, I shall not name, but as far as I know, uh, Sam Cobb was asked to, uh, to help to salvage the situation. So Sa Sam Cobb was, was the one that went in to, to, to drill further in order to, uh, to, to stop the, uh, the spill um, in, of underground uh, oil. So again, this, these are very interesting examples of showing you, again, unknown, not so well-known brands, but again, firms that you, people in the industry will be familiar with. And there are, of course, other brand names, and these are ones that you must have heard of, or else uh, you can't be living in London. Yeah? Uh, so you have computer companies, you have automobile, you have uh, hotel groups, airlines, uh, even tea companies now. These are acquired entities by some of the Asian firms. So I think I've said enough about some of these firms. And of course, I'm painting more or less a more rosy picture. There are some of them which don't do well, which falter along the way, which, again, we can go into great, greater details, as you know, the level of uh, uh, abstraction. And, and again, this gives you a sense of the, uh, the, the size and significance. I mean, Samsung is so big now. I mean, it's $138 billion turnover and 100-something billion dollar market capitalization. Uh, even if you look at Hyundai, I mean, presumably, I mean, it's, it's $82 billion mark, uh, sales, which is not too bad compared to General Motors, which is 135 right? So Hyundai is, is at least you know, over half of uh, GM's size. But in terms of market cap, Hyundai has greater market cap, I mean, has not too far in terms of market capitalization. In other words, how much worth is the company? The same goes to um, uh, various kinds of companies. So just to wrap up by saying that, okay, I've said something about how um, reconfigurations of global production networks 
uh, has opened up opportunities for Asian firms. I've said something about what these firms have done in terms of the various either specialization strategies they have done or partnership that they have uh, developed in relation to uh, their lead firms within certain production networks. Now I just want to focus on the last leg of this triangular framework, which is to do with place matters, geography matters in that sense of the word. Where these firms come from matters. All right? Because, again, the unique institutional uh, political economic setups in those places play very significant inferences. And of course, in this university, you have uh, one very, very influential scholar who, uh, who has written extensively about this, uh, and he's uh, Professor Robert Wade, uh, as you know, at the LSE. I grew up with his work, I mean, when I did my PhD reading his uh, Governing the Market book. So again, if you look at you know, the work done by Alice Amston, Robert Wade, and uh, many others, uh, looking at some of the East Asia, and, and in, in the US, you have uh, sociologists, um, uh, Peter Evans, and they have written quite extensively about South Korea, Taiwan's industrial policies, you know, from the 60s, 70s, all the way to the 80s, and how those policies engender particular industrial champions. They call national champions. And this is what typically we call a developmental state, a state that is geared towards development, economic development, by pursuing, in fact, active industrial policies to the extent that it's no longer invisible hand, right? I mean, you know, Adam Smith calls it invisible, but in the case of the developmental state, they make the hand very visible. You can see it, okay? Because it's right in your face, so to speak. If you don't perform, the state will withdraw. It's uh, subsidies, incentives, grants, and so on. But this is in, in the days when many of these economies were still not quite democratic as they are today, and the state, and particular person, and particular institutional setup had tremendous power and authority uh, in terms of executing some of those industrial policies. And that result in pretty divergent outcomes all right, among the NIEs. So Hong Kong did not pursue that active industrial policy, and as a result, uh, very few of these major firms came from Hong Kong. Uh, rather, Hong Kong specializes in property development, financial, and so on and so forth. Uh, another interesting point is, is the idea that since the 1980s, particularly with the development of uh, mainland China, um, it creates tremendous opportunity for, if you like, inter-regional or, 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 or in, intra-Asia uh, uh, interaction among some of the economies so that there is a great deal of uh, sub-regional integration going on in terms of production systems and open up tremendous opportunities for some of these East Asian firms, which by, by the 1980s and early 1990s will have already occupied a certain market niches. So uh, if you look at Taiwan, for example, Taiwan has successfully established itself in, uh, in you know, the middle to uh, northern part of China and to a certain extent southern China as well. Uh, Singapore also, uh, we have uh, nearby, you know, what is called the Singapore, uh, Johor, and um, Rail Island in Indonesia, a growth triangle. Again, some of these external economies which play a role in, again, creating and sustaining the competitive advantages of some of these Asian firms in terms of cost, again, uh, efficiency, and so on. So this is the kind of unique advantage and uh, situation that some of these Asian firms benefit from. Finally, I just want to say something about the organizational aspects of some of these Asian firms. Uh, again, this comes out of my own interest in studying what's called ethnic Chinese family business. Uh, quite a large number of these firms, even Korean firms, were family businesses. Family businesses, 
we know yes have some you know problems and advantages i'm sure some of you are sent here by your family members right by your father or your uncle or whatever to do your study and one day go back to serve the family firm right okay so uh, we have family firms which uh, go wrong after three generation or even second generation right but equally i think um, in in the case of some of the ones that survive and have done well there is a particular uniqueness in family business, which is to do with the idea of longevity, right? I mean, the idea of family business is to make sure that it lasts generations and generations. Again, I'm not saying that family business is unique in East Asia, all right? I mean, we have uh, Italian firms which have lasted 12 generations. I mean, there is a whole federation of family business networks, I know, and uh, the longest is uh, Lombard, Lombardi, apparently. It's like 13 generations now, all right? So the point is this, this phenomenon is not unique to East Asia, but many of these East Asian firms tend to be family uh, businesses. And hence, it holds a kind of longer-term investment horizon. And because of that, it's not subject to the usual quarterly capital market constraints that typically Anglo-American firms face today, quarterly report, and hence, again, short-termism in investment uh, horizons. There are others which are non-family-based, but again, conglomerates which benefit from, again, intra-group subsidies, cross-subsidies of one division, which may be domestically oriented, be able to extract good profits to cross-subsidize its internationalization, and hence outcompete uh, some of these competitors in the global economy. Again, you know, we can go into specifics, but just want to say, at a kind of broad scale, we can see some of these dynamics going on. So in conclusion, I just want to say that um, if you look at this lecture so far, it seems that you cannot boil this, this particular phenomenon down to a singular factor. Now I know, I mean, you know, in, uh, in the social sciences, we like to find the most important determinant, right? The most statistically significant factor or whatsoever. But I think there is a danger in doing so. Um, because while we can create very nice and elegant, um, if you like, analytical outcome, we lose picture of reality. Realism matters, I think, in this particular context. And in, in terms of this particular phenomenon I'm looking at, I think the kind of interactive effects of global production networks, corporate strategies, and home-based advantages, all right, these three sort of blocks of, of factors, I think it is much more interesting and if you situate it within a particular historical and geographical context, it will give you a much better analytical uh, uh, grip on the phenomenon. And I think that's the kind of uh, uh, theoretical implication I want to push in today's uh, context. Uh, going back, there are important implications in terms of policy and uh, for business and uh, government um, institutions. I think one is to do with, well, it's important for, and as well as for other developing countries, it's important to identify and locate some of these windows of opportunities. And hence, it's important not to just pursue industrial policy blindly, but to see what sort of global industries are opening up and creating opportunities. In so doing, hit it at the, at the right time. And timing is important. Second is to build up competencies. Many of these East Asian firms wouldn't have made it if it did not have the technological and or organizational competencies. I think that is a very important factor. And many of the times, of course, when business is good, you just keep doing it. You just keep growing without, again, consolidation, thinking of the uh, com competencies that you have to take the firm to the next lab. So in that sense, I think, again, you know, it's important for, for, for particular 
other business communities to think of the competence, competencies and capabilities when, when they try to compete in the global economy. And of course, finally, the, the entrepreneurs are very important. Uh, the kind of vision that some of these entrepreneurs have in going beyond uh, their domestic setting, beyond the kind of comfortable, sometimes protected domestic uh, market will be very, very useful uh, for the firm's long-term growth. Okay, I just want to end by saying that, well, despite all this, there are problems, there are pitfalls, there are uh, obstacles when uh, some of these firms go into the global economy, sometimes over-diversify, right, and do things that they do not have really the necessary competence. And for example, in unrelated businesses, uh, sometimes there are opportunities that arise because of friends, 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 and uh, some of these firms just go into it and burn their fingers, essentially. So I think the, the danger, the real danger of over-diversification tend to occur to some of the family conglomerates we know of. Uh, second is the idea that some of these firms may not be too familiar and aware of the very uh, market position that they are in. Sometimes they may be locked into particular market trajectory that will be eventually going out of the market. So, and, and for example, some of these Asian firms may be locked into a particular supply position uh, to, to, if you like, global value chains, global production networks that, yeah, that are, they are essentially going downhill, so to speak. And finally, there are significant political risks and uh, national sentiments in certain sectors that make it really difficult for some of these Asian firms. I mean, I know, of, for example, in Singapore, we try to acquire banks and, uh, and, uh, and some other in, you know, regulated sectors in our neighboring countries in Southeast Asia uh, face tremendous uh, political uh, obstacles for obvious reasons. Again, the idea of little red dot invading their countries. So I think the problem here is that some of these political risks and uh, national sentiments must, have, must be taken into account uh, with regard to uh, the, the uh, global expansion of some of these Asian firms. So I think if you look at this t uh, talk so far, it, you know, I tried to uh, explain how some of these uh, Asian firms emerge in the global economy by trying to see how they have become strategically coupled to the, uh, into specific global production networks. But I think I want to end the talk by saying that, well, I mean, broadening beyond some of these four economies, again, bearing in mind these are small, relatively small economies, uh, there are new state powers emerging in Asia. This is where China, India, as well as some of the uh, uh, economies in Southeast Asia are emerging. Uh, and this is the, the kind of new challenge to this particular map of uh, Asian firms that we can look at. One is, of course, to do with the massive investments in human capital and R&D in, in, again, the bigger countries, the BRICS and the like. Uh, another is to do with the rise of the sovereign wealth funds uh, that some of these economies, and, and of course, if you think of the Middle East as well, have tremendous uh, uh, national wealth that is locked into particular uh, financial institutions known as the SWFs, and, and some of these sovereign wealth funds have a very different way of engaging with global firms. And I think that is also a topic that, that will become very significant, and some of you I know is interested in that topic. So on that note, I shall end. Um, thank you very much. So uh, we're just going to take questions, um, see how many hands come up, and we'll take them either in ones or in groups. Lady at the back. Uh, there a, have we got microphones? Yeah. So if you could just, just say who you are and introduce yourself, that would be nice. 
Hi, thank you so much for your talk. My name is Maria Carvalho, and I'm a PhD student at the Krantham Institute. Um, my question has to do with the innovation capabilities that are being developed in East Asia. And uh, normally in very highly young industries which are innovation intensive, they keep on saying these technological breakthroughs will happen in Western economies. And as you know, uh, with innovation, place does matter as well. How is, but there are, especially I'm looking at the renewable energy industry, and there are certain East Asian firms which are becoming leaders also in the innovation side. How has industrial policy or different capabilities uh, being developed in East Asia to help these firms become innovation leaders? Thank you. Perhaps take one more. There's a gentleman here. Um, hello, I'm Adiwan. I'm a PhD student at UCL. I want to ask you about the role of research and development in Asian um, firms. Are there as large as um, European or Western base, or is it's just only a supplier for? Uh, oh, sorry, it's only part of the value chain or the supply chain from the Western firms. Thank you. Okay. Um, now, I think the first question has to do with uh, how does industrial policy in some of these East Asian countries or economies uh, matter when it comes to, for example, the renewable energy sector? Um, and I think you are th probably thinking of China uh, as well as Taiwan. Okay. Um, now, I'm not too familiar with the industry. I know China is putting a lot of resources into renewable energy and, uh, you know, for example, in wind, uh, wind turbine manufacturing is already... I was in the Basque country recently uh, in Spain. I know they are also very big in this technologically, but size-wise, China is coming up very quickly. Um, and, and in these kind of industries whereby... Um, the return is not immediate, but capital investment is big. Uh, the role of the state matters a lot. And again, this is the time when, um, if you like, domestic states that are reasonably well endowed financially uh, can make a break in terms of the way in which some of these firms uh, emerge. So I think uh, the advantages that some of these East Asian countries or uh, economies have, again, you know, sometimes I, I use countries' economies, a bit tricky because I've got Taiwan here and then Hong Kong and all these uh, economies. Uh, Hong countries, I'm a bit confused. So, um, so I would say in terms of innovative cap capabilities-wise, industrial mat uh, policies matter particularly in industries that are fairly new to some of these economies. All right? in the, for example, in the electronics industries today, industrial policy is not going to matter already because I think in many of these economies, uh, it seems to me that the leading firms in the ICT industries are themselves global players. They do not need the home government to tell them what to do. They don't even need them to provide finance because they've got more than enough finance in terms of accessing to London and New York to, uh, to place their shares and bonds. Uh, so I think in that sense, uh, new industries like renewable energy uh, will benefit from uh, industrial policies. And I think in a way I can see the same in Singapore's uh, environmental uh, engineering kind of uh, industries. Again, we, we put in tremendous in that sense. The second question from uh, our, our visitor uh, at UCL is to do with uh, the size of some of these Asian firms. Are they playing subservient role to European firms in the same sector, for example? Now, again, the tricky thing is that, you know, again, we can't, we can't brand all European firms as 
European firms. European firms have tremendous differences. British firms and Swedish firms and German firms operate very differently. Uh, there is a huge literature about uh, different business systems, or we call it variety of capitalism literature, that says and, and tells very distinctive stories uh, about the relationship between some of these well, presumably European firms and their home capital markets, home banking system, and home uh, political institutions. Um, so in that sense, I think, first of all, uh, I will deconstruct what European firms mean. Uh, second, to say, yes, there are, of course, some very large European firms uh, in certain industries. So Siemens is very large. It covers a variety of industries. But Siemens is no longer very interested nor, nor very competitive in the ICT industry. It just can't really compete in the longer run. It has to exit some of these industries. But Siemens is making the trains. We can't really make trains very well. All right. uh, China is trying, but as you know, it's, it's not easy, all right? making high-speed trains. Siemens can do this job very well. And in Britain, again, you have uh, some of the leading world's companies in many fields. So I think, if, if you like, the world is big enough for, for many different kinds of firms. And uh, I, I, I do not really see European companies as particularly dominating uh, in, in all industries, nor American firms, for example. But I think, uh, and, and mind you, I've not even talked about Japanese firms. And Japanese firms in some of the, uh, the sectors are extremely competitive and dominating in the global economy. So. Yeah, there's a gentleman at the back and then a lady there, I think. I don't see anybody right on that side. Uh, Toby Chambers, uh, WeCare Foundation. Uh, I'm going to set a little challenge for you, actually, um, because looking at the, your experience from Asia, what would you recommend if you were advising Greece on how to revive their economy? What would you say to them? Because it does seem to appear to me that one um, particular issue is this um, developing sort of global network partners and that, that's where probably Greece hasn't really um, is, is failed quite dismally on that score. And also on a kind of political front, there's been a lot of issues with trying to keep Greece actually into the euro. But long term, you know, is that policy really beneficial to Greece itself? Hello, I'm Carol Lok, uh, who is a master's student here at Geography. Mm -hmm. My question is concerned about the um, survival of the small and medium-sized enterprises um, in Asia, especially in Hong Kong and Taiwan, which they have actually contributed to the majority of GDP there. Um, in your talk, you talk about you know, how the big uh, Asian firms being able to specialize and uh, move up and take advantage of the global production network. But how about those small uh, SMEs firms in Asia, which lack the capital to invest in uh, R&D and which lack the capital to in invest in technology, and they remain themselves at a very lower part in the global value chain. So I'm just wondering, what's your view on, on the survival of these SME firms in Asia? Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, both um, questions are to do with, if you like, uh, economic advice. All right, I should set up a consultancy company, maybe. But we geographers don't generally do it, except Richard Florida and so on. OK, um, first question is to do with advice to Greece. And uh, I mean, I don't really know too much about Greece. I know it's facing tremendous uh, challenges right now. Um, 
But I, I think the general story I, I can relate to is to say that, uh, first of all, don't give up manufacturing. But it's a bit late because even Britain has given up quite a bit of manufacturing. Uh, because once you have given up, the skills, the assets are going to be very hard to be redeveloped. So I think that, again, I have no big idea about the transformation of the, of the Greek economy over the past, say, 50 years. Yeah? So, so I, exact, I don't exactly know what, 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 Greece's, what the Greek economy looks like, so to speak. Um, but I, I, I would imagine that, I mean, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know of too much uh, manufacturing capability, for example, out of Greek companies. Maybe it's just a wrong impression. Uh, I don't know of uh, many global industries that uh, Greek firms have a big role in, uh, with, of course, exception. I know of shipping. Uh, Greek companies are very strong in shipping. Uh, I don't know what other you know, uh, industries. So I think, again, I'm not you know, giving advice on finance, you know, uh, monetary policy, and so on, and hence what to do with the, 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 the uh, EU zone matter. But I think, you know, the, to be connected to global production networks and play a role in that value creation and retention process, every partner, every locality must bring value to that. And either through having a market or, and in this case, Greece doesn't have the size of a huge market, or bringing technologies and expertise. Again, that part of it will be something that, again, having continued manufacturing presses will, will, will again create that possibility. So I think I really don't have anything very concrete to offer except to say, well, maybe perhaps uh, it will be better not to be de-industrialized de too fast. I think that's the danger that um, many European economies are facing. I mean, Germany is doing well primarily to a certain extent. Uh, that is uh, manufacturing capabilities remain as strong as ever. Uh, and in Japan is the same, right? The manufacturing capabilities in these two economies are extremely powerful, um, and so on and so forth. And the, the second question is to do with uh, small and medium enterprises. Uh, and I think she's extremely right that um, in both Hong Kong and Singapore, it's said that the uh, SMEs are the backbones of the two uh, economies, uh, which is true. Uh, in today's talk, I focus on the large firms primarily because these are firms that have entered into global industries and outcompete uh, their competitors from all over the world. So, uh, they, many of them actually are very well integrated within uh, their domestic production systems, and hence that's where many of the SMEs play a very significant role in supporting uh, some of these large uh, East Asian firms. What can we do to help some of these SMEs now, this is, again, a tricky question because every SME in every part of the world will want more help, one way or another. You go to America to ask an SME, then he or she or they would like Obama to provide some particular technical and financial support. Uh, if you go to, uh, of course, in East Asia, we have plenty of SMEs. Um, I think it's always a tricky question, how much can the state help? All right. The state can help through perhaps some kind of uh, uh, technological and human resource upgrading programs. Uh, I know in Singapore we have a relatively successful what is called the LIP, a local industrial upgrading program, I think it's called, that uh, the Singapore government tried to link up SMEs in Singapore with foreign firms that, that come to Singapore, and in so doing provide incentives, whether financial or tax, to enable some of these local firms to be able to, to move up 
all right, the value chain in order to be, if you like, preferred supplier partners of some of these foreign firms. And eventually they grew. Uh, I, I know one very exact, exact example that started off as an SME supplying to uh, Seagate, which is the world's uh, number one hard disk drive uh, manufacturer, which has a, had huge investment in Singapore, uh, to make its base plate. You know, every hard disk has a base plate. The plate has to be precise, uh, precision engineered. And this firm started small, supplying to Seagate as one of the many suppliers. Eventually, it did very well, grew very successfully, of course, borrowed more finance from the state, and eventually now become a public listed firm that actually supplied the vast majority of Seagate's hard disk drive uh, base plates. So in that sense, I think there is a trajectory for SMEs to grow. But I think the question is, um, you know, part, partly um, the favorable role of the state uh, in terms of support, as well as, again, the entrepreneurial visions of some of these SMEs. I think that's important. Yeah, in the front. And the gentleman at the back, yeah. Thanks. I'm also a master's student from the geography department, and um, my question is, while having the huge dynamic markets and growth opportunity of Asian markets in mind, why is it still attractive for Asian firms to go global and therefore um, enter in less growing and high competitive markets? Good. So right at the back, please. Um, hello, thank you. I met a school teacher in Nepal recently who posed a question about which path his country should take, that of China with an emphasis on economic development and maybe less on freedoms and democracy versus that in India with an emphasis there on democracy and freedoms but maybe a, a less guided economic plan. Which would you advise for countries such as Nepal and other developing nations at that level? Right. Um, yeah, interesting. Again, both questions now come back to the more macro uh, issues. Um, let me start with the first that, that talks about the, uh, the, the, the presumably large markets in Asia. And hence, uh, why do these firms need to you know, plug themselves in the global production networks. Um, I think actually the large markets in Asia, uh, we are really referring to consumer markets. Um, but as we know, many of this uh, need for consumer products would be met by uh, lead firms um, in, in, in global industries. And hence, today it actually doesn't matter uh, how do I put it? It doesn't matter where the actual market is, but but the but but the competitive position of a particular firm in that particular global industry. So the market can be served by having production within Asia, but it doesn't mean that any of those firms belong to Asian uh, uh, firms or bosses. It could be entirely foreign for the same argument, and that would be a problem. And the reverse could also be true, right? Uh, all need, all consumer needs in America, let's say, fulfilled by a world factory in China, but all those factories are owned by American firms, and that will be equally problematic, right? Because you will ask, why don't they make everything in America since the market is in America? So the point today is that in an era of global production, 
uh, it really, to me, it doesn't quite matter where the market is. Um, as long as firms have competitive positions, uh, strong competitive positions, they will operate and do well wherever the market is. So even though, mark, well, presumably, Asian market seems to be bigger now. Actually, it's mainly because, you know, as you know, the European market, North American markets are, are, are saturated. But it doesn't mean it's small, right? I think there is a, a misnomer in this context that we always think of China. Okay, you know, billions of people, everybody buy one, you are, fun, you are, you are done. But then not everybody will buy one, first of all. Secondly, not everybody can afford to buy one. Uh, whereas in America, you have hundreds of millions all right, who can buy, and they probably will buy, all right? uh, particularly in the days of easy credits. So the point is, I think, uh, the, 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 the sense of consumer's market size, and, and here, of course, I'm also talking about, by the way, intermediary, uh, intermediate uh, product and service providers. So they are not making the final product necessarily. Sometimes they are supplying to something and play a very important role, and that in turn lead to something else. Um, the next question that deals with um, economic growth versus freedom, so to speak. Which should come first, and what sort of choices should states make? Well, as we know, uh, I come from uh, an economy that chose um, restriction but good economic growth for a long period of time until fairly recently, okay? So, uh, which is Singapore. Um, and I think there are always pros and cons, right? Uh, we only know after it has happened, right? So we can have, uh, of course, the Philippines, for example, another good example, you know, pretty democratic uh, since Marco's days, uh, but the economy hasn't been moving very well. Uh, India, some might say, is another example vis-a-vis -vis China. But what if China goes wrong? Right. What, what if China actually goes wrong in the next five years? Do you know what will happen? I don't know what will happen. It's too big a, a case, so to speak. So I think, you know, every country has its own, if you like, uh, historical trajectory. It's very hard to, to say which is necessarily better, because the better can only be known as an after effect. You know? so, we, you know, we in social science typically study backwards, right? You know, something has happened, with, you know, like I've just explained something backwards. I can't tell you what will happen in the next 10 years, except certain part of social science, which is predictive. Uh, but I'm not into that part of the predictive part. I just, I can only say that the choice is really in, in, in the particular polity, it means the, the, the particular uh, uh, citizens, the, the particular uh, ruling, ruling, um, Collision and uh, political entities in that particular countries. Foreign, I mean, you know, uh, our advice can only be, be a, you know, giving different cases of possible trajectories and how some of this can be mixed in the way that it may work. But again, it's a kind of go a little, you know, kind of Deng Xiaoping style, you know, talk about move two heads, uh, two steps ahead and then one step backwards in order to kind of, you know, not go overboard. So. I don't see it, you know, it will work again today, for example. Another China can work. So Indonesia, for example, is a lot more democratic today. But then again, because of that, I would say it's not necessary because of that. But the, uh, the economic trajectory is not the same as China. I think that's quite clear. Yes, we've got two questions here. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm a third year student studying business and marketing at Middlesex University. Uh, I just wanted to ask, um, what role does marketing play in Asian firms as compared to UK firms? Is it as prominent as it is 
in UK firms in Asia. Just right behind you. Hi, I'm Henshin from geography department here at the LSE. Uh, because you mentioned uh, Samsung, uh, uh, one thing I'm also aware of uh, regarding Samsung company is it's a very big and very big global player, but at the same time, it's known for, well, not very well to outside people, uh, world, but within Korea, it's known for very oppressive uh, policy in regard towards trade unions. So it's one of the big companies in South Korea where uh, the, uh, the progressive trade union movement is not is simply not allowed mm. by company policy. Mm. So I wonder whether uh, in your uh, survey of these big companies in the, uh, from East Asia, mm. whether you can whether you identify any common you know, maybe common aspect in terms of the uh, trade union policy or labor policy. Uh, okay. The region. Thank you. Um, the first question is to do with raw marketing in Asian firms. I think um, the idea of marketing was not really well known among Asian firms until really perhaps the past 15-ish, 20 years. Before that, you know, many, of course, first of all, before that, you know, many of these economies were very much developing, you know, kind of still industrializing. So making a living was the, 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 the first step. Uh, and hence, the idea of uh, marketing, developing, developing brands came much later. So it's really, you know, the past 10 years, many of these firms talk about the, the, the worth and value of their brands. So if you think of Samsung, again, okay, so it ties to the question number two. Uh, the marketing side, Samsung has done very well now today uh, in Taiwan. Taiwan has a sort of a famous, I mean, international brand program. You know, the government tried to invest in, in helping some of the firms to develop global brands. Um, so I think this idea of marketing and branding becomes very significant in the past 10 years. Primarily, again, with the same idea that once you have grown to be very competent in certain part of the market segment, you want to take over the role as lead firms. Lead firms are the firms that designed right, markets and products, and hence they control the brands as well. Uh, but of course, brands, once developed, will be hard to, uh, to be forgiven. I mean, you know, so everybody knows Coca-Cola today. Uh, but I mean, Coca-Cola takes a long time invested tremendously. Uh, McDonald's is the same. So you can't have an Asian burger chain that is going to outrun McDonald's in terms of branding. Uh, but on the other hand, there could be new possibilities, new industries we are talking about, uh, or acquisition of existing brands. So there are existing brands that have been now acquired by some of the Asian firms. So I think I would say these firms uh, from Asia are, are playing much greater uh, emphasis on uh, marketing and branding today. Uh, and I think that's, uh, that's going to help in terms of their uh, global dominance eventually. The, 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 the question from Hyun uh, is about Samsung, as well as actually Hyundai and uh, some of the other large Korean, uh, known as Korean chabos, uh, means conglomerates. Um, yes, we know that. I, I don't particularly study uh, labor practices, but I, I do know that uh, there is uh, a lot of critique. Uh, I mean, our friends in uh, South Korea, uh, labor geographers and so on, um, have have yeah, made significant critiques about some of the labor practices. Um, but of course, in a way, one might argue the, 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 the ability to keep a lot of, for example, Samsung, still keep quite a lot of production within South Korea. Partly is because it's able to navigate labor costs and uh, labor um, um, controllability issue. 
So if, for the same argument, if we have the entire, say, American labor practice uh, imposed on uh, Samsung in South Korea, then I would imagine Samsung will re relocate everything out of South Korea because you just can't do it. I mean, with the same pension system and so on, it just can't work uh, or, or protection. Um, so in that sense, it's a tricky question. It's, uh, you know, which, which should be done first and how it's to work out. But, uh, but I, I do uh, acknowledge that uh, many of these Asian firms, at least for the initial period, benefit from oppressive, terrible labor practices in the domestic economies. Uh, and then, of course, things gradually change over time. And, you know, uh, the, the case of Foxconn in China is a, is a very good example. I mean, you know, uh, one, over one year ago, I mean, you know, somewhat 20 workers uh, committed suicide in the factory. And many of you will have heard of, again, exposing some of these major issues. Yeah, but it takes time to, uh, to, to, to rectify some of this. Yeah. We've got time for another round of questions, if there are a couple left. Gentlemen there. Maybe one person will go last, yeah. Uh, hi, thank, uh, thank you for your uh, speech, Professor. Um, I, my name is Gavin. I'm a master's student here. I have a question about the culture of Asian firms and how the way, the way they do business. Um, many talk about um, Asian firms, or Asian people, they uh, emphasize, emphasize a lot on personal relationship or guanxi, uh, especially for Chinese firms. So uh, do you think it carries more benefits or uh, negative, negative effects on the success of Asian firms or uh, Chinese firms especially. Thanks. Right, right by you, I think. Hello, uh, my name is Jürgen. I'm a PhD student here. Uh, I, I wanted to come back to your triangular model, which I found very fascinating. Uh, which of the three points or three key elements is, is what, what, what I think what the, somebody else, or similar, similar aspect raised, uh, which of the three points you think is the key trigger? Is it like the, the international global aspect or the domestic market since if we look back in the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, the Park government or in, was in the 1980s against all uh, advice. He, he introduced or he introduced shipbuilding or m massively in South Korea, which uh, seemed to work well at this point. So yeah, your, just your thoughts mm -hmm. about this. Right. Is there anybody else that yeah. burning to ask a question before we? Okay, so we'll take these two, Henry. Okay. Thank you. Uh, let me start with Gavin's question, which again is very pertinent on the uh, role of Guanxi. Is someone around there? No. Okay. I can't see that. Uh, on the role of Guanxi and uh, I think uh, relationship, I mean, I think it's fair to say, first of all, again, I just want to demystify a little bit by saying that uh, the, the, the role of uh, personal relationship in business is, again, not, is, is not essentially Chinese not Asian. Uh, we have old boys network in this part of the world, uh, in, in America in the earlier days. So it seems, and in today's Italy, we still have lots of relationship-based uh, business transactions, let me call it this way. Uh, except, of course, in, chi in, in the Chinese culture, there is a term right, known as guanxi or relationship. Okay, it seems to me this particular mode of social organization of business is more prevalent in an economy where, if you like, uh, property rights and institutional structures are not well defined. So
So you see, I mean, I, I, I tried to, I mean, actually I started off my PhD with very strong cultural belief that, you know, oh, we are Confucians, so yeah, we rely on this and so on. And then, you know, after I wrote my thesis, then I realized it's garbage, so don't read it. Um, actually, I think we tend to self-culturalize ourselves and think, ah, I'm Chinese, so of course I depend on Guanxi. But actually, I think then the more I realize, hey, but when I meet Chinese elsewhere, maybe Guanxi doesn't matter as much. Right. Why? Because I think as these four economies we are looking at have become very um, relatively more mature today, right? Mature economies. Again, China is different. China is still growing and merging and so on. But if you look at Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and South Korea, the systems have been much more developed today in terms of the institutional system. Um, in terms of the economy, again, these four economies are much more developed today. So the reliance on Guanxi will be similar to, well, I would imagine if you think of uh, the city of London, the bankers, they know each other too. They also go to the same club, I mean, not all, I mean some of them, and hence they engage in business with each other. The same will happen in Hong Kong, I would imagine. The same will happen in Singapore's financial market. It's nothing unusual. But I think the reliance on Guanxi Guanxi-based transactions tend to be higher in the early stage of economic development. And that happens to China today because, again, it's early institutional structures, not, def not well-defined property rights are, not, are still not too well-defined. And again, politics matter. So once you have all this opaqueness built into a business system, then the reliance, I mean, you know, the, it, it's, it's a question of information asymmetry. So again, you deal with people you know precisely because the environment is so uncertain and opaque. But once the environment becomes more uh, uh, accessible, clearer, and more established, then the reliance on Guanxi and relationship will be lower. Now, that brings to the next question. How would that account for the success or failure of some of these East Asian firms? I would argue that the, the reliance on Guanxi may help some of these uh, East Asian firms in the earlier days, and go back to uh, Jürgen's question particularly in the days when the, uh, the prime minister and the presidents were intervening directly. In other words, you know, the firms that were privileged by, by the big bosses right, uh, could gain an advantage in access to capital, access to even export licenses, or even license to, to open shop in particular sectors. All right? However, today, this is not going to work. First of all, those politicians are fairly elected in most cases. So they can't really go into this in the way that Park, could, Park Chun Hee could, could have done it in his time in Korea or the same during Guomindang Day, well, still Guomindang today in Taiwan. But in the early days of uh, 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 Chiang's, uh, Chiang's era, uh, of uh, Taiwan and uh, in Singapore case is again quite different. So I would say today um, the reliance on Guanxi will not really help some of these East Asian firms anymore actually because today it's the technological competency, the organizational capabilities and so on that help some of these firms to become strategic partners of global firms. And the, the, the less they are Guanxi based, the more likely that they have to compete on the real stuff. And hence if they could do it, they would do it well. So I think reliance on Guanxi can only help you so much beyond a certain level, particularly once you go out of your domestic setting. And this is why I will argue that, you know, for example, some of the mainland Chinese firms, we say they're big, they're doing well, but once they go out, go out of China, can they compete? If they are so Guanxi-based, once they go out of China, they can't compete because Guanxi matters differently once you go out of China. A different kind of Guanxi is required, if you like. 
Uh, and hence, going back to uh, finally Jürgen's question about which, which, which of the three in the triangular framework is the key trigger. I think uh, if you look at it historically, I will say is, um, is, the, uh, is the domestic economy that was the first trigger. That if you like, if the domestic, uh, essentially the developmental state, did not pursue the right policies, many of these firms wouldn't have their initial impetus. You know, if you like, you didn't have the right parents, put it that way, then you have a problem. You have no chance to come to the LSE, no matter how great the university wants to globalize, internationalize, right? If your parents didn't make it, you have no chance, unless you give them a scholarship, so to speak. And that's the window of opportunity, right? But then you must be willing to do it. Instead of going Harvard, you come to LSE. Or instead of going NUS, you come to LSE, right? So you got the right. Home, home context, you got a scholarship and the acceptance. I didn't get the acceptance. I did not apply in my time. And then you make, you make a choice, strategic choice, coming to the LSE. Right? So I think home matters first, followed by the window of opportunity. You are the last. You have to make that final choice. So if you have to force me to come to one factor. So thank you. I'm sure you'd have got in if you'd applied. Um, let me just thank LSE event staff for putting on tonight's event. It's always done so efficiently. Thanks to everybody that's come out tonight, and particularly those of you that asked questions. Thanks institutionally to you, Henry, for linking NUS to us more directly. But particularly, I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, Henry's got off a plane this morning from Singapore. I'm wrecked when I get off a plane from anywhere. And I think you've given a tremendously fluent, articulate and thought-provoking talk that we've all appreciated. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.